Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 36, Numbers chapters 35 and 36, the end of our study of the book of Numbers. Well, this week, we bring our study of the book of Numbers to a conclusion. And I hope that you've been surprised by the amount of history and legal precedent and establishment of God's principles that we found here and that this book is anything but a bland accounting record as the name of it kind of implies and people usually stay away from it for that reason. Um, Last week we began Numbers 35 and that chapter discusses the establishment of what amounts to the tribe of Levi's inheritance in the promised land And this was to be the assignment of 48 special cities for the Levites. And these cities were to be scattered throughout the land holdings of the 12 tribes of Israel, their location selected by the 12 tribal leaders. Six of those cities would be designated as sanctuary cities, with three of them located outside of the promised land and three of them located to the west side of the Jordan um, in the promised land. So let's reread a portion of Numbers chapter 35. Matter of fact, we'll read 35.13 on through the end. Numbers chapter 35.13 on through the end. That would be beginning at page 193 in your complete Jewish Bible. In regard... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Let's try that again. In regard to the cities you are to give, there are to be six cities of refuge for you. You are to give three cities east of the Yarden, three cities in the land of Canaan, and they will be cities of refuge. Now these six cities will serve as a refuge for the people of Israel as well as for the foreigner, the resident alien with them. So that anyone who kills somebody by mistake may flee there. However, if he hits him with an iron implement and thus causes his death, he's a murderer. The murderer must be put to death. If he hits him with a a stone in his hand big enough to kill someone and he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer must be put to death. Or if he hits him with a wooden utensil in his hand capable of killing someone and he dies, he's a murderer. And a murderer must be put to death. The next of kin avenger is to put the murderer to death himself. Upon meeting him, he's to put him to death. Likewise, if he shoves him out of hatred or intentionally throws something at him causing his death or out of hostility strikes him with his hand so that he dies, then the one who struck him must be put to death. He's a murderer. And the next of kin avenger is to put the murderer to death upon meeting him. But suppose he shoves him suddenly without hostility or he throws something at him unintentionally or without seeing him being his enemy or seeking to harm him, he throws a stone big enough to cause death and the person dies. Then the community is to judge between the one who struck him and the next of kin avenger in according with these rules. And the community is to save the killer from the next of kin avenger. The community is to return him to the city of refuge to which he fled. He's to live there until the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil dies. 
But if the killer ever goes beyond the limits of the city of refuge he fled to, and the next of kin Avenger finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, and the Avenger kills the killer, he will not be guilty of that man's blood. Because he must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the Kohen Hagadol, high priest. But after the death of the Kohen Hagadol, the killer may return to the land he owns. These things shall constitute your standard for judgment throughout all your generations, wherever you live. If anyone kills someone, the murderer is to be put to death upon the testimony of witnesses. But the testimony of only one witness will not suffice to cause a person to be put to death. Also, you are not to accept a ransom in lieu of the life of a murderer condemned to death. Rather, he must be put to death. Likewise, you are not to accept for someone who has fled to his city of refuge a ransom that would allow him to return to his land before the death of the priest. In this way, you will not defile the land in which you are living. For blood defiles the land. And in this land, no atonement can be made for the blood shed except the blood of him who shed it. No, you are not to defile the land in which you live and in which I live. For I, Adonai, live among the people of Israel. There's a concept here that needs some discussing and that concept is sanctuary. Now another word that could be substituted for sanctuary is asylum. Now, where did this notion of asylum come from? This idea that there is a place where a person who's afraid of the government, whether that government be the form of a tribal leader, a judge, a king, whatever, can go and be protected from arrest and punishment. The punishment that the asylum seeker is usually running from is, of course, the death penalty. Now first, as you probably guessed by now, the concept of asylum or sanctuary was not invented by the Hebrews. It was a long established part of many Middle Eastern cultures' justice systems. Yet the basic premise in its purest sense is a godly one. Second, as a result of it being the norm for virtually all Middle Eastern societies of that era, it existed among the Hebrews in one form or another. Various cultures enacted it in different ways. Usually it involved fleeing to the priests or standing inside the temple that was dedicated to whatever god that was currently important or supreme to that nation. Okay. Now we find the earliest record of what the Hebrews accepted as the place of sanctuary back in the books, book of Exodus. And where the sanctuary, the place of the sanctuary is located, is a little bit of a surprise. Listen to Exodus 21.12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. In other words, like was so typical of all the ancient 
cultures, it was before the altar of burnt offering for their god that was the original place of sanctuary. So before the Lord gave the full law to Moses, it was the practice for an Israelite man to run to the altar, and as we find out in the later books of the Bible, to actually grab hold of the horns of the altar as a sign that he was seeking sanctuary. Okay? And as long as he stayed glued to that altar, he couldn't be touched. Now here in Numbers 35, Yehovah ordains the way he wants the principle of sanctuary to be carried out, which means both that God accepts this principle and that in order for it to be valid, his people must follow his procedures of asylum. Now, since there were no sanctuary cities until they entered the promised land, what was used before then? Well, it's unimaginable that a regular Israelite was allowed to touch the brazen altar inside the tabernacle compound, and he certainly couldn't have gone inside the sacred tent to hide. Likely, the camp of the Levites itself served that purpose. Right. However, since the Torah doesn't tell us that, it's, that's just my speculation. Okay. Something, though, served as the place of sanctuary because it was not possible within the cultural norms of those days to not have a place of asylum. Yet as the centuries go by, we find that the Israelites never fully instituted that system that God gave to them. Okay. There were sanctuary cities, but in some eras... They were either not in use or they invented other means of sanctuary in addition to the asylum cities. Now, we read that in David and Solomon's era, apparently the idea of coming to the altar for sanctuary and grasping onto its horns still existed among Israel. Listen to 1 Kings 147. And moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king has also said thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my own eyes see it. Then all the guests of Adonijah, were terrified, and they arose, and each went on his way. And Adoniah was afraid of Solomon. And he arose, and he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adoniah is afraid of King Solomon, for behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So here was a man that thought that the new king, King Solomon, was going to kill him. And what did he do? He ran and grabbed a hold of the horns on the altar of burnt offering. This happened in the, the days of the kings. Let me point out, though, how diminished the priesthood must have been during David's and Solomon's reigns. And how... Even though we ascribe this man David as so close to God's heart and Solomon is such a wise man, they were far from perfect. No priest ever 
should have allowed a regular Israelite, let alone a criminal, to defile the altar by touching it. But apparently, this episode in the book of Kings means that the practice was known and it was accepted by both David and the priesthood for at least some period of time. The question becomes then, what is it about the altar that caused heathens to use it as a sanctuary and then at times in Israel's history for Hebrews to do the same thing? It's because some principles we learned a long time back. Whatever touches a holy object becomes holy itself. This is a guiding biblical principle. We saw it with the fire pans that Korah and the 250 men brought before the Lord, but because these men and their fire pans were unauthorized, they were all destroyed. They were made holy. Those fire pans were made holy by being simply so very near to God, let alone touching any kind of holy object. This falls within the Levitical law that holiness as well as impurity can be transmitted from person to person, object to object, or even object to person. Thus the fire pans back in Korah's day, which had contracted holiness, were beaten into a lid for the altar. The coals and the incense ashes that were in those fire pans were taken outside the camp and destroyed. See, God's ordinance does not allow human hands to touch the altar or any sacred implement. The one exception is the priests. For certain well-described purposes such as transporting objects can at times be necessarily touched. But even then, because a human has touched them, a measure of defilement is passed along to it. And this is one of the primary reasons for that special holy day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That the high priest can sprinkle the blood of atonement on all the physical things of the tabernacle and therefore it cleanses them of their defilement that's built up. Otherwise, the building up of defilement from the nearness to humans would eventually make the sanctuary and its ritual objects so impure that God couldn't dwell there anymore. So the use of sanctuary cities for the Israelites could only occur once they were inside the promised land and settled. But like so many of God's ordinances, they managed to ignore and modify God's laws in regard to asylum. And so exactly how asylum wound up being accomplished changed to and fro over the centuries. Now besides the basic importance of our understanding how the principle of sanctuary operated in Israel, I expounded on this matter because it's important to understand that just because we read of certain things happening in the Bible as historical fact, it doesn't mean that what happened or what was stated by some biblical character or another was automatically right or righteous before the Lord. 
I gave you the example of David and Solomon allowing the practice of ordinary Israelites grabbing the horns of the sacred altar which would defile it. We covered a couple of weeks ago the matter of vows and Jephthah who made a rash vow to the Lord that wound up sacrificing his own daughter. Nothing what Jephthah did was righteous before God. It was wrong. Okay. So we have to be very careful when reading the Bible to distinguish between the absolute perfection of the divine laws and ordinances and principles laid out by God versus the imperfect way often very great men and women of the Bible thought of these laws or, or how they carried them out. Okay. We tend to get into a mindset that because a, a special person, a hero in the Bible, like a Abraham or David or a Paul, okay, did something in a certain way that it was automatically godly. Not so. Okay. It's our duty, it's our job, as followers of the God of Israel, to study Torah and all the scriptures, to thoroughly understand his character, his principles, in order that we don't completely misconstrue what we read in the Bible. Okay. Old Testament or new? Now beginning in Numbers 35.16 we receive the laws concerning manslaying, killing. And whether the slaying of a human is to be considered murder, manslaughter, or some other category. And as we discovered back in Leviticus, intent is the key to making that determination, just as intent is the key to determining the seriousness of all sin. And in order that it can be made clear, just what the Lord considers homicide, versus accidental killing, versus even justifiable taking of human life, we get a series of examples of each of these things. Okay, And the first example revolves around the implement that was used to, to cause the death. And the principle is that if an implement was designed for the purpose of inflicting harm, a spear, a bow and arrow, a mace, right, then it's a weapon. And if it was used in the killing, that act should generally be seen as murder. If an implement that was not designed as a weapon, but if used improperly, it most certainly could be a weapon, like maybe an axe handle, okay, then it's still murder. And the Lord unequivocally and without apology says that a person who commits murder is to be executed. Further, this person cannot buy his way out of the sentence, nor is he permitted the grace of being housed and protected in a city of refuge. Now, the reason for this attitude about killing the murderer is one that has come under fire around the world. Okay. Everywhere the cry is that while it's certainly wrong to murder, it's also murder to put the murderer to death. Or another refrain is, what good is it to take another human life since it won't bring back the dead? Or that this is not rehabilitation, it's retribution. 
Certainly it will not bring back the life of one who was slain, nor does it offer rehabilitation to the criminal. But in the Bible, that's not the issue that's being addressed at all. Okay. Sadly, it is a huge portion of the church that has led this charge to rebel against God's instruction on murder. The reality is that God says plainly that a murderer is to forfeit his own life. Why? Because this, because life, number one, is invaluable. And the only atonement for the illegal and unjust taking of life is the execution of the perpetrator. The act of executing a criminal guilty of murder is a just and necessary killing because the blood of the innocent defiles the land. And the only way to cleanse the land from its defilement is the atonement provided by the blood of the murderer. We just read that here. This is a Torah principle. It is a spiritual principle plainly stated in the Bible. But it has been lately rendered as more of an ancient superstition or barbaric or something that Jesus overturned. Now further, the biblical view is the taking of the life of a criminal is from a higher level, actually preservation of life. That that is a person who commits a homicide is liable to do it again. All right? And why should the next innocent victim pay the price for what the criminal has done? Okay? Or as we see today, why should we warehouse a murderer at a cost to the public of $50,000 a year just so he can exist? to attack prison guards or fellow inmates. Sadly, as our American society increasingly turns its back on what God has ordained as just just punishment for violent crime, we see the criminal being turned right back into society, only for him to quickly find another victim, because violence has become his nature. Now church, please hear me on this. There is only one way for us to justify not executing a murderer. And that is by our deciding that we are against the word of God. And that the way we have done this is by saying that the section of the Bible, this section, the Torah, that deals with these matters so forthrightly is abolished. It no longer applies. Now let me say straight away, that if we're even going to entertain the notion that the Torah is dead and gone, then so are the Ten Commandments. So are they dead and gone because they're simply the first ten of the 613 laws of the Torah. Yet so hypocritically, many of us believers will declare that the Old Testament isn't for us, and yet many of us wouldn't even attend a church if it didn't have a copy of the Ten Commandments stuck up on the wall. You know, if a church really believed what they say they believe about the law, how many sermons would have to be discarded because they mentioned the infallibility of the Ten Commandments? 
which is but the law in Exodus. It's an interesting problem. You know, we believers are so confused on these matters because we have demanded that the Old Testament be considered invalid even though Yeshua himself went out of the way to say, no, it's not. It lives. And that if we want to know if there will ever be a time when the Torah and the laws and the prophets are abolished, he said it wouldn't occur until after when the heavens and the earth passed away. I don't want to detour too long, but I had a local pastor say to me not too long ago that when Jesus spoke those words that I just spoke to you about the law and the prophets not being abolished, that he was only talking to the Jewish people. And so it only applied to the Jewish people. And I asked him if he knew exactly where in the the Bible those words were actually spoken. And he said he really didn't off the top of his head. I then asked him what he thought was the most important message that Jesus ever gave to the church. And he said it was probably the Sermon on on the Mount, which, by the way, I fully agree with. I think it was. Well, to his surprise and maybe to yours, those words of Yeshua steadfastly and plainly maintaining the validity of the law and the prophets were in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, is the Sermon on the Mount only for Jews? Of course not. What a ridiculous thought. You know, we throw away parts of the Bible that we don't agree with at our own peril. We've thrown away God's laws concerning his justice system, and now we're in a world of chaos. And a horribly deceived church that prefers our own image of God instead of who he actually is, is generally what's to blame. Sorry to say. And this is why Torah class and so many other congregations around the world have been formed in hopes of restoring the sanctity and authority of the entire Bible as our guide and written source of God's general will. Now, in verse 19, the Lord says that the person who's to go, or rather, who's to be the executioner of the murderer is called the blood avenger. The Hebrew term is ge'al or go'el, or better, the dam ge'el. Dam means blood. And although the word ge'al or go'el is usually translated as avenger, it really doesn't have a direct translation. We, We assign it a lot of different words, but better, little better, just in a general usage, would be the word redeemer. So, it's the blood redeemer, or blood avenger, who's assigned to kill the murderer. See, inherent in the Hebrew term ge'al is that this person's a relative, a member of the victim's immediate family or clan. And it is the dom ge'al who is to take action on the offender. Now, let's understand... This is not a tradition. This is God's law. 
Okay. Now, I, I, I don't want anyone leaving here to say that Tom Bradford says that we in America should take out personal justice on someone who's done violent crying to our family member, or if we don't do that, we're disobeying God's law. Okay, rather, the principle behind this law is that true justice in the case of murder is life for life. Specifically when that life taken was done on purpose and unjustly. You know, once Israel began to have kings, we'll find that those kings invariably all sought to stop the practice of the Dom Ga'al, the blood avenger, going after the criminal that harmed his family member. And this was because in a structured and settled society with a well-organized human government, it would be chaos if every man determined another's guilt or innocence for himself and then sought to be the one who carried out the sentence. But understand this as well. The principle of it remains. Just because of man's sinful nature and our imperfect justice system, that doesn't mean that the godly concept of the blood avenger is dead and gone. Okay. In fact, it is but one of the primary duties of the, kin- of the kinsman redeemer to be a blood avenger. Did you, did you catch that? It's one of the primary duties of a kinsman redeemer to be a blood avenger when called for. Okay, Just as we believers tend to discard those, I don't know, unwelcome characteristics of God, such as his severity and his wrath, in favor of his mercy and love, we also tend to picture the kinsman redeemer as a very wonderful, kindly fellow, whose job is as a rich uncle who runs around rescuing his poor relatives from the bank who's coming to foreclose on their land. Certainly one function of the kinsman redeemer is to assure that land that was originally in his clan never leaves it. Or if a family member of his was made a slave, let's say, to pay off a personal debt, that that person would be purchased back out of that slavery by the kinsman redeemer. But another equally important role was as the blood avenger. Is not Yeshua Hamashiach called our kinsman redeemer? Yep. Then understand... He wears the mantle of both aspects of that title. Not just the one we prefer. When he came the first time, it was from the aspect of the kinsman redeemer that selflessly buys back a person's life from slavery. And he bought our lives back with the only way God sees as a permanent solution, with his own life and his own blood, when Jesus comes again in the near future, he'll still be as a kinsman redeemer, but this time he'll come in the role of the Dom Geal, the blood avenger. He has already purchased the souls of God's people, and he did that some 2,000 years ago. 
Next, he will take out God's wrath on those who persecute his people and refuse to submit to him. And we see this most starkly as he becomes the fierce warrior leading the charge at the battle of Armageddon. The formerly mild and meek Messiah taking lives at the rate of thousands every time he swings that sword. Filling the Jezreel Valley, we're told, three feet deep with the blood of those against whom he is exacting the Lord's justice as the blood avenger. But what kind of justice would it be if a victim's life was taken accidentally, even if a low degree of negligence was involved, and the perpetrator was hunted down and killed for it? Therefore, verse 22 gives circumstances as examples of accidental killing, such as someone getting angry and shoving somebody, but without intent to kill them. Or perhaps a person threw something at a victim, but not with the intent of severely injuring that person, certainly not intending to kill them. Then, if that happened, provided a council decided that there was no malicious intent, the perpetrator was to be given safe harbor from that blood avenger. This type of killing is what us moderns might term negligent homicide or, more likely, manslaughter. If unintended killing is the judgment of the council, then the perpetrator is to be ushered into one of the six Levitical cities of sanctuary where the blood avenger may not go after him. He's going to be safe there. However, this does not relieve the perpetrator of his responsibility for the death of that victim. And even more, very interesting, it does not relieve the duty of the dom get all to kill that person. Okay? It's just that there is a place that's off limits to the blood avenger. So as verse 26 states, if that perpetrator of manslaughter stays safely inside that sanctuary city, he's protected. But if he ventures outside the city limits of the asylum city, he becomes fair game. And if the blood avenger kills him outside the city limits of the sanctuary city, then it's only justice. Then there is this interesting remark in verse 28 that adds a very important caveat to this whole procedure. The perpetrator of manslaughter remains in his blood guilt no matter how accidental. It all might have been, and therefore he's exiled to the sanctuary city, not until he dies, but until the high priest dies. Hmm. Okay. When the current high priest dies, whether that comes a day or 50 years after the perpetrator is sent into protective asylum, then the blood guilt is forgiven. It's removed. The blood avenger is no longer allowed to take that person's life under any circumstances 
And the perpetrator can return home not only free of fear of the Dom Gaal, but he's also cleared in God's eyes of his blood guilt. What a strange thing. What happened here? It's this. The only way a manslayer can have his guilt before the Lord atoned for is for the high priest to pay for it with his own life. Ah, some of you are going, ah, well, that sounds kind of familiar. The death of the high priest, a natural death, by the way, is envisioned. <laughs> becomes the God-accepted atonement for the perpetrator of manslaughter. But see, this eventually created a problem, one you were all just chuckling about. Because it didn't take very long for a manslayer to see that the rather large advantage for the high priest to die as soon as possible. Mothers of high priests began bringing food and gifts to the perpetrators in exile so that they would be content enough in their asylum not to become so impatient that they might actually start to pray for the high priest to die. All right, so that they could return to their families and resume their normal lives. We actually have record of this concern, by the way, in the Mishnah. Verse 30 says that a person can only be declared a murderer provided there are sufficient witnesses to the act. Hearsay or only one available witness is not sufficient because the matter is just too serious. Now, the crux of the matter is stated in verse 33, though I touched on it earlier. There is a spiritual reason for all this complexity concerning the loss of life. Blood spilled on the land of God pollutes and defiles that land. And, of course, the blood that's being spilled is assumed to be blood that's spilled unjustly. Further, every death pollutes and defiles, and so the impurity of spilled blood and of death piles up and piles up on the land, thus causing the ritual impurity of the land to become more and more. And the inherent understanding is that the Lord and all of his holiness cannot dwell on land that is thoroughly drenched in impurity. And the Lord desires with all of his being to dwell with his people so much that he gave his only begotten son as the high priest. That for those who will trust in that reality, they will dwell with the Lord for all eternity. That is the whole point of his plan for mankind. Let's move on to Numbers chapter 36 and finish this up tonight. Numbers chapter 36. The leaders of the clans of the family of the descendants of Gilead, the son of Mahir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the descendants of Joseph, approached and addressed Moses and the leaders, the heads of the clans of the people of Israel, and they said, Adonai ordered my Lord to give by lot the land to be inherited by the people of Israel. My Lord was ordered by Adonai to give the inheritance um, of our kinsman, uh, Silofchad, to his daughters. 
But if they get married to anyone belonging to another of the tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of our ancestors and be added to the inheritance of the tribe uh, that they will then belong to. Thus it will be taken away from the sum total of our inheritance. And when the uh, Yovel, the Jubilee, of the people of Israel comes, their inheritance will be added to the land possessed by the tribe they will then belong to and be subtracted from the inheritance belonging to the tribe of our ancestors. Moses gave this order to the people of Israel in keeping with the word of Adonai. The tribe of the descendants of Joseph is right in what it says. Here's what Adonai has ordered concerning the daughters of Zolofchat. Let them be married to whomever they think best, but they must marry only into a family from their father's tribe. In this way, no inheritance of the people of Israel will move from one one tribe to another for each of the people of Israel is to hold on to the land for inheritance belonging to his father's tribe. Every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel is to become the wife of someone from the family of her father's tribe so that every one of the people of Israel will stay in possession of his ancestors inheritance. Thus, no inheritance will move from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel will hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zolofchad did as Adonai had ordered Moses. Machla, Tzirza, Hogla, Milka, and Noah all got married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the families of the descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the mitzvot, the commands, and rulings which Adonai gave through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. In an earlier chapter... Of numbers. Moses ruled that the daughters of Zolofchad could inherit their father's land portion because he died having had no sons. But this has the potential for catastrophe. Okay. What would happen if any of his daughters married someone even worse outside of Israel? Since it is the husband who owns whatever his wife has inherited, the land would be lost to foreigners, theoretically, for all time. But the problem that's addressed in chapter 36 isn't quite even that global. The concern that is addressed is less about what happens if a Hebrew girl uh, who owns land in Canaan marries outside of Israel than it is what happens if that same girl marries outside of her own Israelite tribe. That is, the girl, let's say, from the tribe of Simeon, for instance, marries outside uh, of her tribe and marries a man from the tribe of Gad. Then there would be a situation whereby the territorial allotment that God has assigned could be bled off into another Israelite tribe, thus upsetting both the fairness and balance, as well as God's will, in the territorial assignments. So here in verse 6 is the judgment of God through Moses on such a situation. A female with land rights 
can marry anybody she chooses as long as it's her own clan. Notice that the term used here, by the way, is actually clan, not tribe. Okay, They not only had to marry within their own tribe, but within their own extended family. And if they did otherwise, they were stripped of their land inheritance. And thus at the end of this chapter, it makes clear that the daughters of Zelophehad actually married their first cousins is what they did. Okay, the wording's a little odd. And they obeyed the Lord's ruling. Now it is clear that as one might expect, the unit of family that the people of Israel most cared about wasn't their entire tribe, but their immediate clan. And in order that one dominant clan within a tribe not carry too much power, which in ancient times was expressed by means of land and livestock, God orders that daughters with inheritance rights must marry within their own extended families. Now, this is not the last of the instructions that we're going to see regarding the use and transfer of land within Canaan. Deuteronomy is going to show us several more instructions established by means of precedent on this subject. You know, we're so urbanized today that we tend to forget the importance of land. But to God, land's important. And the promised land is a major ingredient to his overall plan. And the land that the Bible calls Canaan is specifically set aside for Israel. Always has been, always will be. The Lord will go to great lengths in the Torah to ensure that the land is never to leave the possession of his people, but it happened anyway. The cause was multifold, but primarily it was Israel's apostasy against the Lord. From the moment the land was handed over to Israel, they would play fast and loose with God's ordinances regarding the land, and the consequences are still playing out every evening on our TV sets. And it's amazing, is it not, that all recent government administrations of both America and Israel are so blind to God's laws concerning the land that their solution to the problem of violence against Israel is to continue to give it away to the descendants of the people that God ordered that it be taken from. <laughs> As we continue our study in the, of the Torah and the book of Deuteronomy, the folly of this decision should become even clearer. Next week, we're going to begin the final chapter of the Torah, Deuteronomy. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.